Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altucher show today on the james altucher show oh my gosh I mean, this next person on the podcast, she, I'll just start with the very first thing she writes about in, in her latest book is how Dr. Mengele, the notorious Nazi doctor who would do experiments on Jews, Dr. Mengele forced her to dance when she was 16 years old on her first day at Auschwitz when her parents had just been, you know, well, You'll hear us talk about it in the podcast, but her story is horrific, but also she's 94 years old and she's incredibly inspiring. She wrote the book, The Gift, which is an amazing book. Here's Dr. Edith Eager. Dr. Eager, I've, I've read your book, The Gift, 14 Lessons to Save Your Life, and you have such an incredible story. I'm really honored you have come on the podcast to, to talk about it. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I, I am very happy to, to be with you and uh, see what we have in common. Yeah, that'll be interesting. I don't know what we would have in common, but we'll, we'll see. You know, mm -hmm. you have an incredible story, and I, and I hate to ask this, You've probably told the story a million times, but for my listeners who might not know your story, could you maybe describe some of what 
happened to you. And then, and then of course, I'm really looking forward to talking about the gift. I think it has to do with turning everything in life into an opportunity, um, an opportunity and find hope in hopelessness and find a gift in everything uh, that will ultimately make us stronger. So it's kind of turning bad into good and uh, not to forget it or overcome it, but to come to terms with it. And I call it cherished wound. Even in the very beginning of the book, you describe how your first day in a concentration camp, you had to dance at the bidding of Dr. Mengele. I mean, and 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 that same day, so much happened to you, and and obviously your 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 parents, and how, you know, it's hard to imagine turning yes. that into a gift. And obviously, in your own way, you have, but I can't even imagine it. I am happy to tell you that it was actually tomorrow uh-huh. the fourth when I was liberated. I was told it was a Friday afternoon. And uh, so when I was in Oprah, uh, she asked me about uh, what happened. And I I was among the dead. And all of a sudden, I felt my hand being touched. And I looked up, and all I saw was a big lip. uh, And and she got up, and she said, was he black? (laughs) And... And I never saw a person of color. And I said, yes. And then I looked at his eyes and tears were coming out. And in his hand, he had M&Ms. If you come to my house, I'll give you M&Ms. And my picture is on it. <laughs> and so that's this is uh, May 4th in 1945. And I'm so grateful. To tell you, today I have three children, five grandchildren, and seven great-grandsons. I consider it my best revenge to Hitler. And you're talking to my firstborn, wonderful Marianne, a brilliant psychologist who is married to a Nobel Prize winner. And uh, she's going to be here for the summer. And... I will enjoy every minute of it with her, not just my daughter, but also my colleague. I mean, it's kind of remarkable. You have obviously a remarkable story. And then your daughter, Marianne, who's who's here as well. Hello, Marianne. And Marianne, your husband is, has a Nobel Prize in economics. He does. I mean, Dr. Eager, you must have been the most annoying person to your neighbors when your son-in-law got a Nobel Prize in economics. <laughs> like. Yeah. How are we going to compete with with Edith now? It's her son-in-law is a Nobel Prize. Well, I have to tell you a story because I think it's the cutest story. The person that I who was totally embarrassed by all this was me, because I don't know if you've been to the Nobel Prize. Um, you know, it's a whole week of festivities, and my mother was there, and my husband's mother was there, and a lot of our friends came, and and our relatives it was it was wonderful, and then they have this big dinner and they give the award um, before that at the, at you know, the opera house. And then after it's all over, the, um, the family is taken into a, another place to have a picture with the king and queen. 
And so we did this and, you know, it's the king and queen and, and my son and daughter and Rob and me. And then I look up and I, and, and, and you go through all kinds of security to get into this space. And then I look up and I see my mother and my husband's mother holding hands, sort of skipping down toward us. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this is the most embarrassing thing ever. How did they get here? What do I do now? (laughs) (laughs) And so, of course, I said to the king and queen, I'd like you to meet our mothers. (laughs) And, um, And they were gracious, of course. And my mother, who is the most amazing sort of personality to be with, was so warm and they took pictures and all this. And then she and the queen started to gossip about their children and who their children were dating. Anyway, all that was just like, oh my God, is this really happening? So then, this was 2003. 2000, I think 10 or 11, we went back because some friends of ours had won the prize. And we went to a special dinner at uh, the palace and the queen came up to me and said, oh my goodness, how are you? And how is your mother? Well, I'm, I'm sure you're very uh, memorable, Edith. So uh, that's it's quite quite a story all the way through, and and you know, and again, I want to kind of just start in the in the beginning, so the listeners kind of get the the background. You know, you spent a year in a concentration camp. During this time, did did you ever think that? You know, you must have thought many times you would never leave this place. And how did you kind of make it through each day, given the horrors you must have seen? Yeah, um, each day, we never knew what's going to happen next. Because four o'clock in the morning, we stood outside, they were counting heads. And they told us, if you don't feel well, we don't have to come out that we're going to go to the hospital, but there was no such thing. You went to the gas chamber, so we knew exactly what to do, holding on to each other. When we took a shower, we didn't know whether gas or water is going to come. So it's been the situation like we have today, when we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And I think it's a very difficult time, and I'm guiding people how to find hope in hopelessness and how not to ever, ever give up. And, and I, and I wonder, like, it seems sometimes people get into situations that are ongoing, like, like a terminal illness or they feel lonely or whatever. But in the very beginning of, of your experience, there must've been just this raw fear because everything was uncertain minute by minute. How do you deal with fear like that, not when it's daily and ongoing, but just fear right then that's so extreme. Like what was happening to you? You know, the question is, how do you cope with the unexpected and the unanticipated? I was not prepared for anything like that. I was told one thing and then I found another. I think today it's very important for people to practice flexibility rather than rigidity and to be survivors rather than victims. I refuse to be victim. It's not my identity. It's what was done to me. I think there is a big difference when you take responsibility 
and become more grounded and uh, also become accountable. So and I think it's very important for us to be grown-ups and be a good parent to ourselves. No, I, that's a good phrase, be good parents to ourselves. And, but, but like you, like you mentioned in your first book, the choice, it's a, it's a choice to do this. And what if, what if you've never experienced that choice before, because you've always been sort of rushing for approval or, or rushing for chasing happiness or, and you've never experienced the depths of, of sorrow and fear that, that others, and then suddenly you do. Like, what if you just haven't exercised those muscles and you don't know that these choices exist? I, I think it's very important to live in a present. I can only touch you now and, uh, and forgiving ourselves to be able to uh, uh, accepting the limits and the boundaries within we are operating on. We're not limitless, we're limited. I do anything that's humanly possible, and then I hand it over. Right, but but so along with that, like let's say, like you mentioned, and uh, you know, practice self care, practice self love. But how do you do that? What if you don't even know what that means? What if I can say I say to myself, "Well, I love myself." How do I know? How do I know I do? And how do you practice finding out? Let me tell you what I say to myself. I don't like it, it's inconvenient, and it's temporary, and I can survive it. You know, you, it's the way you think about what's happening. It's your uh, way of turning anything into an opportunity to discover that life is from inside out. So I pay a great deal of attention to self-talk, to self-dialogue, so I can really be a good parent to me because that's the only one you're going to have for a lifetime is you. All other relationships will end. Dependency breeds depression. And so what sort of self-dialogue do you do? I don't like it. It's very inconvenient and it's temporary. I don't say yes, but. Give me the but, I give you an and. Yes, and. Yes, and it's temporary. And yes, uh, um, in the morning, when I get up in the morning, I look in the mirror and I say something like, I uh, am hoping to have a good day and I'm going to be satisfied in the evening. It's not what happens, you know, it's how you feel afterwards. And so, but like, let's take an example from your book. There was the woman who, um, her husband, told her yes. he didn't love her. And at the same yes. time, she came down with cancer. And from her perspective, it seemed, it must have seemed like everything was failing in her life. And, yes. and she would end up dead. All these things would start failing and then she would end up dead in the worst case scenario. And, and without anybody there by her bedside because her husband was leaving her. How does, how does someone like that convince themselves right then that it's better for them to not be sad or upset or, or a victim. It must be very hard. I don't know if you saw Gone with the Wind or did you read that book when she says, I don't like it, it's inconvenient and it's temporary. I think about it tomorrow <laughs> that you, you don't give up. 
you do everything possible. And that's why I tell people, don't call me a shrink, call me a stretch. <laughs> and, and you can, you know, I'm hoping to stretch people's comfort zone that uh, they can always find something good in everything. Everything is an opportunity for discovery, not recovery, discovering the way that you can have a certain attitude, the way you think about, the way you think about, about your thinking is very, very important. It can change your whole body chemistry. And, and, and how, when did you start realizing this? Like when you got out of the concentration camp, when World War II was over, you're, you were liberated. And you mentioned how so many prisoners, they were liberated, but then they didn't know what to do. They just sat down in the concentration camp. They didn't, they, they didn't understand freedom or, or liberation at that point. How did you go, how did you personally get on a path of, of liberation? I just wanted to live so badly. I wanted to live. I wanted to uh, tell my story. I want to tell people what happens when good people do very bad things. And I was, I was determined to do that and never give up or wait for somebody come and liberate me. I think dependency can really, unfortunately, get in the way. And for us to recognize that you can sit in a back in a car as a child and you can mess around because somebody is driving the car. But now you want to make a decision whether you want to be driven or you want to be the driver and take responsibility with freedom. There is no freedom without responsibility. It's anarchy. Well, okay, so, so what do you mean by that? Responsibility for, for what? Yes, for myself, because the only one I will have is for a lifetime, all other relationships will end. Self-love is self-care. It's not narcissistic. I say that over and over and over again, that, uh, that self-love is very important that anything you do, you ask yourself, is this going to empower me or deplete me? Now, obviously, if you start drinking, um, you know that you're giving yourself permission to let go of the total responsibility because it affects your brain. My daughter has something to say. Marianne? Yeah, so I think what you're wondering is how in the world did she survive this in her mind? Not to mention just all the weight she lost and all the battering they did to her. And then how did she recover and move on? And I think there are two things. One is she was there with her sister. And having her sister with her, having the two of them together was an amazing support system that I think was very helpful. But the other thing, and you know, if you've read both books, you know my mother was an incredibly talented ballerina and um, athlete who was working to be part of an Olympic team when she was told because she was Jewish, she couldn't. And so she 
she has an amazing ability to uh, take charge of a situation and work as hard as she can. And I think she has always done that. And I think having that kind of um, feeling of kind of self-mobilization almost, you know, she makes it happen and she sets goals and she makes it happen for all of us. It's really um, a masterful to watch. And I, th and I, I, I hope when people read her book, they, they understand that these qualities are things that actually all of us can do. It's just that most of us don't, but we could. There's, there's really no stopping it. It's just I feel, there. I feel though you can get addicted to feelings of failure or victimhood or depression or dependency, all of these things you discuss. And when it becomes addictive, it, you almost latch onto these feelings as survival. Like you survive because you're a victim for many people and they don't know how to get out of that mindset. And, and I have to confess, I have, I've felt that way many times, you know, and how do you kind of recognize that these feelings are not good for you and, and you rip yourself away from that addiction? Well, you know, I read your biography on the internet today. So you may have felt those feelings, but you've been a very successful man. So you must've found ways to move on. And that is what we're always looking for in people, that they find ways to acknowledge what they're feeling and then move on. And I, I think it's hard to know what you're feeling. And, and you mentioned in the book, um, you know, take, stop and feel physically where these emotions are residing. And, and what's happening then when you're, when you're doing that? I think the acknowledgement that life is easy is false. Life is very hard and it's hard work. Unless you are willing to acknowledge that, you're always going to wait for something or someone outside of you, which I think is the dependency that can breed depression. So I like people to choose whether to be babies or big boys or big girls, because there is no freedom without responsibility. So I know that you're a very successful man, right? But you have a little boy in you who is probably um, nudging you to go and have ice cream and do some other things. And you have to take charge of that little boy that the tail of the dog does not own the dog. So I think it's very important to have uh, priorities to working, loving, and playing and have a good balance in life. And was, was there a moment, whether it was in the 1940s or 1950s or 1960s, was there yeah. a moment? when you realize, and you discuss this a little in the book, but where you, where you were still felt you were in the prison of Auschwitz and, and you were still holding on to. I think, here. I think I was remembering what my mother told me in the cuddle car. And I repeat that every time I go to school and talk to young people, my mother told me, and I quote, we don't know where we're going 
You don't know what's going to happen. Just remember, no one can take away from you what you put here in your mind. I think it's very important to watch the movie, uh, The Karate, uh, the, the Karate Kid. That's oh, yeah. a very good one. To, to the, the best really um, mind is going to really give us the way to live our lives. I think I think about it every moment of the day. How can I be useful to other people? I never ask, how can I help you? I'm not Humpty Dumpty. I don't put people together. I want people to take charge of their own lives. And so what, what's like an example where somebody thought that they were in charge of their life, but they really weren't, and you noticed it, and maybe they even argued with you on it. Maybe they said, I'm in charge of my life, but you saw that they weren't. What were they missing and what did you tell them? I, I, I never ever deny someone else's truth. If they tell me that green crocodiles are walking on that wall, all I say is, oh, tell me about it. I never, I never say, no, no, you're wrong, or this is not the way it is. I never argue because there is no truth. It's all subjective. I am right, but I'm only right for me, Edie. I cannot be right for you. I'm sure right. I'm only right for me. But you also say in the book, ask, is this good for me? So it might not be good for that person to believe that green crocodiles are, are walking around. How do you kind of steer them to waking up to that? I, I just say, tell me more. And I become a very compassionate listener. And then I repeat what I hear. But I don't deny someone else's truth. It's all subjective. And I'll use as an example, again, the woman who, whose husband left her and right when she was getting the yes. cancer diagnosis. I, I would say two words. Sounds like, and then I go from the head. Men always want to figure things out. They want to understand everything. I go to the heart and I say, sounds like you said about it. I throw in a feeling word and it doesn't matter what it is because they will correct you anyway. So not to think about which feeling word, it doesn't matter at all. But just put a, a, a word that goes from the head to the heart and give them permission is a very good word. To give yourself permission to feel any feelings without the fear of being judged. Yeah, and so, so for instance, what this woman probably felt very angry and rejected by her husband at this time. But there is no such word as rejection. Rejection is an English word that people make up to express a feeling when you don't get what you want. Give up the drama. No one rejects me but me. That's true. How do you bridge the gap between how someone's feeling at that moment to that wonderful truth that no one can reject you but you? I never treat a person as they are. I treat them as if they were what they are capable of becoming. Mm. You're not a victim. Marianne, when you were growing up, did you see this in her parenting style? Did, if you came home crying, 
Uh, well, you there's a story. You came home crying one day because you weren't invited to a birthday party. I got chocolate cake. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I think when I was young, my mother was a new mother too. And she never wanted me to have my feelings hurt. She always wanted me to feel happy. And then as she grew and I grew, we both figured out that actually we don't have to be happy all the time. We just have to be happy enough. There is a, um, a kindness in my mother that you can probably already sense. And, of course. and growing up with such a kind parent, and my father was also very kind. And they were both very tough with, li with life and getting what they needed. But with me, they were so kind. And, you know, I had to get my grades and do all the right things, but I did them naturally, fortunately. And um, so, you know, if my feelings were hurt about something, I could talk about it. Um, you know, it's so interesting. You know, my father's family was a very wealthy, powerful family. And the communists tried to kill him when he wouldn't become a communist. And then they were able to flee and come to the United States. There were two visas given to Czechs at that time, Jeff from Hungary, and he, his family got, he got one of them. And they came with nothing. I mean, he, they, they came with absolutely nothing. And what's fascinating about it is that I never felt poor. And we lived, my mother tells me, in these tiny little places, and my father was, was going to, uh, graduate school and my mother was working in a factory and and we they'd make a game out of going to um, get the laundry done and I really I have no recollection of feeling poor in any way I felt I was a happy little girl um so I, I mean I, I I I have great great admiration for my parents for and, being able to pull that off and so you never felt the sense that for, with either of your parents, um, oh, we used to have this, 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 this is horrible now, we don't have this anymore. No, and I have to say that, you know, I grew up in Texas. Um, and since my husband and I have moved to New York, we've met a lot of, not a lot, but some um, um, people whose parents were Holocaust survivors. And the beauty of me not knowing what happened until I was about 12 um, was that the things that most of these, these people say to me is that their dinner table conversations were all about what used to be and, and what they lost and, and what happened. And, and so these kids grew up with a lot of guilt and, and sort of feeling a lot of these feelings that their parents were carrying with them. Well, and so, so, I, I didn't have that. Edith, how did you explain to your kids about what happened to you? Uh, it's not my identity. It's not who I am. It's what was done to me. So I refused to be a victim. I was victimized. Uh, it's not who I am. It's what was done to me. I'm still a good person and I can choose my attitude the way I not react, but to respond to anything that comes my way. You know, you, earlier you said that good people could do very bad things. Do you forgive the guards 
in the prison camp? I don't have any godly power. I think uh, forgiveness is not for me to forgive anyone for anything. I don't have that kind of power. I just want to be free myself and let go of the part in me that may be holding me hostage and prisoner of the past. There is one thing I cannot change is the past. I think that is very important to really make a decision every morning whether I'm going to live today and uh, be satisfied because that morning sunshine will never come back. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, If you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. 
listening to you talk, it's I'm inspired and I agree with you, but sometimes I'll wake up, for instance, and I'll think about someone who wronged me, obviously not like what happened to you, but I'll think of someone who did me wrong and you get almost obsessed sometimes with those thoughts. Yeah. And it's hard to, to stop yourself, be aware, say, this is not good for me and replace the thoughts. But I guess it takes practice. Yes. It takes a lot of practice and it takes acknowledgement. The fact that you could even acknowledge it now means that you're on the road. And a lot of people, when they have those feelings and those thoughts, they, they can't stop themselves from going all the way to blaming and getting angry and all these things that we know in the end are not going to help us. When I came to America, I came from Bremenhaven to New York, and I knew that when we went through the English Channel, there was a big storm, and my ship was moving away. And then it came back. Otherwise, we would have gone probably to China. And so I think it's very good to know, and it's good to call it an arrow. It's good to have an arrow that we follow a goal and then pay attention what we focus on so it would be in, in alignment to get closer to the goal. Right. And, and in the book, you refer to one of your influences as uh, Martin Seligman, who's considered the, the father of positive psychology. And, and you talk about learned optimism. So, and, and, and this is part of, I guess, how you get out of those feelings that, that drag one down. So how does, how does one learn optimism and is it possible to be too optimistic? I, I think if you read the literature of Dr. Seligman, um, I have experienced that people would go through the gate after we were liberated and in no time at all, they would come back and sit down. You know, he talks about learned helplessness, that we were so brainwashed that we were told every day that we're never going to get out of here alive. And unfortunately, we have a tendency to believe it. We have to question authority rather than blindly ever, ever to follow authority because there are sick people in Germany called the Jewish people a pariah. You see, you blame, you blame. Germany did not win World War I, and people didn't get the food that they wanted, and so people start blaming and, and using scapegoats. So I think uh, you're asking a very good question as to how you how you let go of guilt, which is in the past, and worry that is in the future. The only thing I can do is live in the present. And that's why we call it the present. That's a good one. Yeah. That's a good point. I never thought of it that way. And was, was there, like, what made you decide, you know, at some point, you know, you're, you're, Marianne was mentioning you were working in a factory. Your husband was going to graduate school. When did you decide that 
clinical psychology was was a calling for you and and you wanted to to do this when you when i was little my mother looked at me and said i'm glad you have brains because you have no looks <laughs> so yeah very true very true so i became very erudite i studied the interpretation of dreams by freud when i was 13 or 14 maybe the latest and so i think it's very very important to to check the way you talk to yourself and uh, find the truth what is true for you i question authority rather than blindly adhere to to any authority i I live uh, one day at a time and I get up in the morning and I'm so happy I'm here, I'm alive and there is the sunshine and I live in La Jolla, which is really a paradise. And I am, uh, I'm just choosing to do the best I can that is humanly possible. And, you know, again, like how much, you know, how does one know again if how do how could I know if I love myself to put it bluntly like how do you know this these things if you don't know just guess <laughs> I like that answer so, yeah. and then how do you practice self-love I ask myself is this empowering me or depleting me mm. is this good for me and I, I have a self-dialogue and listening to my inner voice. It's called the spiritual dimension after the body and the mind that, you know, because there is our blood and I cannot change that. And then there is the environment. I'm choosing the third, how I respond to the other two. So even if you're in an environment or in a situation, which is not very good for you. Yes. You take it another level, which is yes. to choose how do you how you respond to it. Yes, like I went to a parent meeting in school and I became very bored. And I think it was a wonderful wake-up call. And I got up and left. So I think positive thinking means nothing unless it's followed with a positive action. What if you couldn't take that action? What if you had to? What if you had to stay at the meeting? <laughs> well, I, I think uh, schools uh, have certain rules and certain ways, and parents are invited, and the teachers would like to tell you, hopefully, the best about the the school and uh, how they can be good parents to the children and work together as a team. Cooperation, not competition or domination. Right, but if, if you're in a situation where you can't leave, but you're bored, what do you tell yourself? Oh, I, I just say to myself, I'm going to entertain myself and uh, I am going to stay here with my body, but my mind, I'm going to fantasize and maybe go dancing with uh, a good partner 
and I love the big band, and I'm listening to uh, um, the big band music, which I still love, by the way. Uh, my friend died, a beautiful husband of my wonderful friend, and when I was invited, I also hear the big band all the time, and that's how I want to remember him. So I think it's important to think about your thinking and then pay attention what you're paying attention to. Any behavior you pay attention to, you reinforce that behavior. So if you tell me that I want to think of anything, but I don't want to think about an apple, you're going to think about an apple all the time, right? So think about your thinking and pay attention what you're paying attention to, because you are in charge of your thinking, your feeling, and your behavior. And you know, you you also refer as an influence to to Viktor Frankl, and in particular his great book in, yes. in Search of Meaning. And how important is it to have a sense of purpose or a sense of meaning in in life? Many people don't have a sense of of meaning in their lives. I think it's what Viktor Frankl refers to as the existential vacuum. And uh, no money can uh, replace that or anything tangible like that. It's the meaning in your life, the purpose in your existence. And that's why I am so grateful at 94 that I never stop growing. I'm climbing that mountain. I'm slipping and climbing, and I'm slipping and climbing, and I never stop climbing. Marianne, how did you develop your own sense of, of meaning through all this, you know, growing up in a family like this and, uh, you know, finding your own purpose and meaning? You know, um, I'm not sure. It, it just it was never a question for me. I was, I've, I've always been a very curious person. And, um, I've, you know, I was the kid in the class who wanted to learn it all. I was a great reader. I read every book in the El Paso Public Library for kids. Then I had to start in the adult section. Um, I love sports. I love dance. Um, I, I, I had activities planned for myself every day after school because I didn't want to be bored. Um, I was a natural student, which is really lucky. And so I think as life went on, you know, different things came my way or I made them come my way. Um, and I think I think I have good I have great genes from my parents. I have to tell you, I, and and I took advantage of them. And it never occurred to me to feel like a failure or to feel um, I don't know insecure. I just kept moving, and, and I think I still do. I think you you also pay attention to your thinking, and. Um, because I've seen that uh, in in every moment um, with you, you're already thinking of what's going to happen next and how it's going to empower or deplete uh, the situation we are in. You have a brilliant mind, I know, with a warm heart to match. 
How did a bunch of Jews end up in El Paso? Yeah, not that many, but it turned out that my uncle had a son who uh, had been, I guess, in the army. And so he, he was there. And when we were in Baltimore, which is where we first lived, um, my father felt that um, he was never going to be able to succeed there. And so his uncle, the one who uh, was in Chicago, the father of this son, said, um, "Go to El Paso with my son. You'll you'll be you'll be successful there." And so my father went there. He was immediately offered a job at twice what he was making, and we all got in a car and came to El Paso. And there is a Jewish community, um, and it was. Um, you know, it's on the border. Their, the food is amazingly good. The um, uh, It was an interesting place to grow up. And then I was happy to move on. And so, you know, I, I, I have to ask about, you know, it's so amazing what you've been through, what you've all been through and how you survived it and came out of it and wrote these wonderful books and, and been such an inspiration. But the very first day, you were in the prison camp and horrible things were happening. Your parents were, were gone. You didn't know what would happen next. How did you, how were you able to just even fall asleep? Your sister was there. How were you able to fall asleep that first night? When I was interviewed by a couple, uh, that means a person who came there early, like as far as 1941, I asked, when will I see my mother? Because I was told that I'm going to see my mother very soon. She's just going to take a shower. And she pointed at the chimney. And she told me, your mother is burning there. You better talk about her in past tense. And my sister hugged me. And I, I heard her say, the spirit never dies. So as I'm talking to you, uh, I, I can tell you the first night when I was there, I, I could go in my sleep anywhere to be with anyone. No Nazi could ever rob me from my attitude that I chose to be with my mother's spirit as I am now, thanking her that she gave me a choice to be a victim or allow anyone to victimize me. Well, you have as much power over me as I allow you to have. Even though I was told every day, I'm never gonna get out of here alive. And I'm saying to myself, I know better. And so I didn't have to listen to what I was hearing, but I learned to respond rather than react. Well, again, it's such a, a beautiful message and your books, the, the choice and, and your, the recent edition of your book, The Gift, 14 Lessons to Save Your Life. Such, I mean, it was really mind blowing reading these books and I plan on taking as much from these books as possible and putting them into my, putting them into practice in my own life. So 
thank you very much for sharing your story and for sharing your story on on my podcast, both you and and your daughter Marianne. I I really appreciate it. And and Dr. Edith Eager, author of The Gift. Uh, I really appreciate it. One one last question: Do you think you would have had these insights if you hadn't gone through the Holocaust? Well, one thing, of course, I dream that I can do while I'm alive, everything in my limited power, and I'm very limited to see to it that it will never, ever happen again. I talk to young people. I call them the ambassadors for peace and goodwill. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, both of you, and I, re I really appreciate you. the time to come on my podcast. Thank, Thank you. you. And I, if I can say one more thing, sure. the little promo. So um, there's the last chapter in there is about the gift of food and which I wrote and it has 17 recipes from our family. And um, if you want to know how we are, read the chapter and make some of the dishes and pretend we're sitting there with you. I, I I definitely will do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you both so much. And thank you. Your questions were wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.